Hey everyone, I'm Curtis. And I'm Luke. And we are the creators and hosts of the Panjway Podcast. Uh, the Panjway Podcast is an interview-based podcast series that Luke and I are creating so that we can properly tell the story of our 2012 deployment to Panjway, Afghanistan. Uh, our goal is to bring on guests that were there with us or that were there before and after us to kind of shape the story of what we experienced and what the average infantryman experienced uh, in the Panjway District of Afghanistan. Our goal is to create a very human retelling of our experiences, but also uh, be very uh, succinct and uh, descriptive in what we saw and experienced so that what we saw and experienced won't be lost. Yes, it's, it's something that we are both excited to share with anybody out there that's willing to listen. And, you know, we have a lot of really interesting people coming up and it's important for us to let you know that, you know, this isn't just us telling our story. One of the reasons that we're do doing this is because we understood the limitations of our own perspectives on this story. And so the kind of the end goal of this is to bring in these multiple layers of this incredible narrative to, to provide to you to listen to and, uh, and to participate in. And so going down the road, you know, Curtis and I will kind of set the stage, but then we'll have guests come on and we'll be again to really flesh out this story and hopefully provide this, a really interesting perspective on this deployment for everyone. Yeah. And whether, whether it takes us, you know, a year or six months to tell this story, our goal is to, is to tell the story and to tell it completely. Yeah. And we both agreed that if we get to the moment that we're, you know, we're talking about some really off the wall topics with some really off the wall people that probably is when we're going to stop. But for now, we're really excited to get into these stories, to talk to our guests, who most of whom are our former our friends and former coworkers. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, please bear with us as we go through these first two episodes. We're learning as well. Uh, but it is our hope that we can get the boring information out of the way first, and then we can launch straight into these these uh, interviews. Uh, which we think will be eye-opening and very interesting to everyone involved. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we appreciate everyone's support. We've already gotten a tremendous amount of support so far, but we're excited to see how things are going forward. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. Uh, number one way is just uh, subscribe to the podcast and keep listening. Uh, share it with people, you know, and follow us on social media. And if you can, you know, like and share a post and give us a follow on there, it's much appreciated. All right. Panjway Podcast in three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode one of the Panjway Podcast featuring myself, Curtis Grace, and my best friend and co-host, Luke Coffey. Hello all, Luke here. <laughs> Um, so we'll, we'll jump right into it. Uh, you know, we're super happy to get started like, we we're just talking before we record. Extremely. Uh, we're actually a little bit nervous. So, uh, you know, give us a break. This is episode one. Um, so the way we want to open every podcast episode is we want to ask each of our guests, um, you know, how they ended up here. So why they joined the army, why they joined the infantry, um, you know, briefly how they ended up in Panjway. Um, and kind of what they're doing with their lives right now. So I'm going to turn it to Luke, and he's going to give you the rundown on Roy Luke Coffee. <laughs> so before we uh, kick that off, you know, we're here, we're starting this thing, and we're excited to have you guys listen. Uh, we're always open to feedback, and we're always uh, looking forward to progress this thing into the next step. So we want you to be as involved in this process as possible. 
So, you know, to start things off, like why the army? Um, I think it's a pretty simple answer for me uh, in that I had this lifelong ambition to join the military and that went through many different shapes and forms between ages, you know, 12 to 19 when I finally joined. But the short answer is that I joined the army because they let me choose my job versus other branches of the military where you're not guaranteed your job after, you know, basic training or however they arrange it. And so when I was shopping around and I, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do infantry stuff. I just didn't quite know, you know, it was that 11 Bravo MOS, that kind of thing. So I went to the recruiters, sat down with them. I'd done some research online and I just sat right down with them at the desk and they asked me what kind of jobs I was interested in doing. And, uh, I said, you know, I want to be 11 Bravo. I want to be infantry. I know for sure that this is what I want to do because, you know, when you're an eight year old kid playing army, you're, you're playing infantry, you know? And so, uh, they, uh, a good anecdote I'll tell on myself <laughs> is I was sitting across the, the uh, table from this guy and his buddy was kind of standing over his left-hand shoulder and he said, you know, what do you want to do? And I quote verbatim, and this is incredibly embarrassing. I said, I want to be out the guy out there walking in the streets, kicking indoors. <laughs> so they both looked to each other at this kind of smug grin of like, oh, we got this sucker. Next thing you know, I was shipping off to Fort Benning, Georgia for infantry school. Um, so, you know, my life before the army wasn't that exciting. I just kind of grew up as, you know, traditional kind of American kid background. I grew up in a rural community on a working cattle and a tobacco farm, which was excellent, wonderful, and uh, enjoyed that part of my childhood very thoroughly. Um, but my life after the army has been a little bit more different. Um, I got out in 20, 2013, about 60 days after we got back from Afghanistan, and I transitioned directly into going to school. I went to school that August. Uh, so I got out in February, went to school in August, and started my education. And it's been a seven-year tumble and eight or nine months spent living in China and moved to Colorado for my master's degree. And I just wrapped that up. And now I'm on the back end of the master's, graduated in May and launching this project with my good man, Curtis here. So that's the short version. And trust me, it is the uh, short so version. Curtis, well, <laughs> well, I feel like it's easier to get on to these rambling tangents. So apologize in, a, in advance for when those occasional, uh, uh, you know, rambling moments pop up. So Curtis will give us your, the, give us your history. How you ended up in this position. Uh, well, I mean, my short version is way shorter than your short version. So I'll give like the medium version. Um, the short version is I was really bad at college. I was a really bright kid, but I just, you know, apparently have to go to the classes and I wasn't doing that. Um, so I kind of had a choice. I could either keep spending money on student loans or I could go do something and then maybe come back to college. Mm. Um, so I decided to start exploring joining the, uh, the military and kind of like Luke, uh, the appeal of the army allowing me to choose my course was, uh, was super appealing to me. Um, but I also knew that, you know, my goals weren't just simply going and, and join the army. I was looking at the potential of it being a career. Um, and the two areas that really interested me most was, you know, special operations and then aviation. Mm. And for both of those paths, I believe that joining the infantry was the best way to go. Um, so unlike Luke's story where they are like, we got a sucker. Uh, my recruiters tried to talk me out of joining the infantry many times. No, really? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> they were like, well, the, the, you know, the test scores were high because apparently if you try on the ASVAB, you score well. <laughs> you know, they're encouraging me to stay in school and come back as an officer or whatever. But um, I knew that wasn't going to do that. So I chose the infantry uh, because I saw that as the best 
course to to pursue my goals. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm glad I did. You know, it was absolutely I was right uh, to to do that. And I think there was a part of me that really wanted to go to war that I didn't want to go into any of those more advanced uh, positions without having that experience, having yeah. been on the ground. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty common core drive for every infantryman who joins it with a kind of awareness of the significance of the job is they join with this ambition, this kind of weird drive, this need to test your mettle and to go to combat. And I think when you tell people that who aren't from that world, they think maybe it's a little odd or out of sorts to be like, yeah, I wanted to go to combat, you know, but that's a pretty consistent thing across every infantryman's story, which makes it unique to how when you finally get that experience, how your, each individual story unfolds. Yeah. And I always like to tell people, um, you know, the smartest people I've ever met in the military were in the infantry, Absolutely. like hands down, like the most intelligent people. And you know, what I did after my two years in the infantry is I went and I became an Apache helicopter pilot. So like there were no shortage of big brains, you know, flying the most advanced attack helicopter in the world. Mm -hmm. I met some very bright people. But still, the smartest people that I met had a CIB on their chest, <laughs> not wings. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it kind of, you kind of touched on it, that kind of that battlefield intelligence. Uh, it just makes you, makes you stronger in every other job in the military. Yeah. And one more thing about the infantry um, is it is hands down the most diverse work environment you'll ever be in. You know, in oh, yeah. terms of the people you interact with, you've got people from every kind of social and economic background. You've, I mean, in one platoon, we had guys from the Philippines, guys from mm -hmm. everywhere from New York, Queens, you know, street kids to California, you know, and everything in between. And we had guys from America, Samoa. So it's an, it's an incredible experience in that you get plunged into this world where you all have this kind of unifying goal from all these different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I think it's probably no mistake that when you look at the higher echelons of, uh, of army leadership, there's, uh, and it's, it's shifting. Uh, there's a lot more non-infantry leaders, mm. um, you know, joint chiefs and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, the best ones have been former infantrymen. So, and then I left the infantry. I talked all the great things about it. And then I went and I became a pogue. Uh, <laughs> Let's explain <laughs> what a pogue is to our uninitiated listeners. That's true. Cause it's going to come up a bunch. Uh, so pogue is a personnel other than grunt. Uh, which is just a really, really nice way of saying not an infantryman. Um, trust me, there are more honest ways that we describe uh, those jobs. And then I went and I became one. Uh, <laughs> and I don't regret it. Mm. And I'm sure I'll get a lot of flack for it. Uh, and I deservedly so. But uh, I'd like to think I was a special brand of Pogue. But <laughs> there you go. You're a Pogue with a CIB on his chest. <laughs> po I was a Pogue with a CIB on my chest. Right? Right. I also earned a cab, but I've never worn it. Right. I never even, I was never even awarded my cab. I just got a piece of paper and that was it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I went and I flew Apaches. Uh, and then I got out of the army in 2019. Uh, and then I went and worked for Amazon on their drone delivery program for a year before I decided that I wanted to go ahead and wrap up my education. So I did what the most reasonable person would do is I moved to Alaska. To <laughs> I mean, I think that would be the next logical step, obviously. And I'm envious. Yeah, I think obviously. a lot of people are probably envious of you. All right. So, you know, that's more or less our general histories. And I think um, one of the things we can just jump right into the, to the story of this deployment. Uh, like all stories, the best place is to start at the beginning, um, which for us, kind of starts a little a few months before as every deployment does um 
you know, listeners might be wondering, like, what? How did a, a mechanized infantry unit end up in Afghanistan, or how did an armored battalion end up in Afghanistan? And so there's, you know, there's a few ways this happened, but essentially our unit got wrapped into the surge that President Obama came out and announced in 2011, if my memory serves me correctly. Uh, 2010 or 2011. Yeah, so remember. we would kind of get wrapped up in this big push to to send a lot of troops to Afghanistan, push the Taliban kind of out and back a little bit to give some breathing room for what was supposed to be the, the eventual withdrawal from, from there. So... You know, we went to Iraq in 2009 and 2002, you know, 2012, or sorry, 2009 to 2010. That was my first deployment, largely uneventful. Um, you know, we did have a few little incidences here and there, but I didn't even earn my CIB there. I never pulled the trigger in anger in Iraq after 12 months. And then we came back, and as soon as we came back, um, the rumor mill started churning about Afghanistan about five or six months after we got back. <laughs> and so... <clears throat> We, you know, one thing that's important to point out is up to this point, Third ID, which was, you know, our our division. So we were Bravo Company, One Six Four Armor, Second Brigade Combat Team, Third Infantry Division, and up to this point, the only units from Third ID that had deployed to Afghanistan were aviation, as far as I'm aware. There might have been some random support units or something like that, but aviation was more or less the only, you know, the only significant portion of Third ID that ever went to Afghanistan. Yeah, and then, at least at a battalion level. Yeah, yeah. And then um then we uh you know, a couple a couple months before we deployed, our sister battalion one thirtieth deployed and they were the first infantry unit to go to Afghanistan from third ID. As far as I'm aware. Yeah, and I think it's it's also worth kinda throwing out there that, you know, third ID had such a heavy history in Iraq. Um, and the mission in Iraq was kind of abruptly changed in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was somewhere around October. President Obama said we were going to have all combat forces out of Iraq by the end of the year. Um, and to those who are kind of fresh to the military, uh, they, they pretty much decide their deployment schedule years in advance, at yeah. least 18 months in advance. Yeah. So it's kind of my belief, and hopefully we can get somebody on here to confirm or deny that 164 was probably slated for another Iraq deployment in 2012 initially. Mm -hmm. And then when Obama uh, announced the withdrawal forces from Iraq and the surge into Afghanistan, that our requirements got shifted. And that's probably how 164 ended up going to Afghanistan, especially going without the rest of their brigade, which is pretty unusual. I mean, we had been back for, uh, so we got our orders in November. And by that point, we'd been back for over a year. Just just over a year. We got back in October of 2010, and we got orders for Afghanistan just a couple weeks before Thanksgiving of 2011. And it was just this battalion formation. And the big red flag that went up for our company is we had this brand new company commander come down the pipe. And he was there for, I don't know, I'm not even sure, even a full month. I mean, maybe just two or three weeks. Uh, is Captain Brian Kitching, uh, Kitching at the time. Uh, now he's Lieutenant Colonel. Right. And uh, so he came to us at the and we'll have him on the podcast in the future. And he's going to be able to provide us a lot of interesting details and storytelling and things like that. So we're looking forward to having him on. But he came to us and it was like this, you know, this balls to the wall. Go get him, you know, dude coming from Ranger Battalion to third ID. (laughs) And the first thing he did was start whipping us in the shape. And 
before we got any official orders. And so that was a big red flag. Everybody's like, we're, yeah, this is, this has got to be prep for Afghanistan. And sure enough, uh, they rolled around a battalion formation. They dropped the orders and everybody was pretty excited. We didn't know much about it. And so we were almost at the tail end of a gunnery. Actually, we were getting ready to shoot the last few tables of the Bradley gunnery. And we just shifted gears right away and to training for light infantry because obviously we were going to Afghanistan. We weren't deploying as a heavy infantry unit. Um, and we did the same in Iraq. We didn't deploy as a heavy infantry unit there either. But so we started doing all that. We got spun up for all this stuff. We started doing some field exercises. Uh, you know, our new CO smoked crap out of us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went to NTC in February. And while we were in NTC, we were, you know, this was, we knew we were going to be going in March. We didn't have a specific day yet. And we were in, in NTC. We're about halfway through the month-long program out there at Fort Irwin um, in California, which I'm sure that you former Army folks are well familiar with, uh, or current Army folks are well familiar with. But we were, we were out there. We're about halfway through this, and we had this interesting moment as a platoon. Uh, this is before Curtis got here, everybody. So this is why I'm rambling on for a minute. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've got nothing to add to this conversation. Yeah. So we had this interesting moment as a platoon, and, and that our uh, our platoon sergeant, who was first sergeant, first sergeant first class James Ott, who is now command sergeant major James Ott, um, he gathered us all around, and he had this kind of like somberness about him, and he and he we sat around in a circle. And he just broke it down for us. He's like, this is where we're going. You know, this is what's going on there. And he said, this is going to be a fight. And he was telling us about how the Taliban were using IDs. And, you know, we, we knew we were going to Panjway. And I think at that point, we even knew we were going to uh, Sperwangar. Uh, so we got this, yeah, <laughs> we got this, um, this moment where it was this kind of eye awakening, like, Oh shit, this is going to be real. And it was really real when Sergeant kind of looked at us all. And he said, like, we're going to lose guys and we're going to have people get wounded. And that was like, okay, this is the gravity of that moment was just like, this is going to be real. This is the experience that everybody's, you know, that initial drive to see combat, we were going to get to see it. And so we uh, you know, we hopped back to NTC, got back to Fort Stewart, and turned around a couple weeks later and deployed. And that's where you come into the picture. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's like a, there's like a hidden history to this deployment that a lot of people uh, weren't familiar with. Is that uh, I think one six four plus itself up with almost thirty people straight out of basic training mm -hmm. uh, right before we left uh, between the the four companies. Um, and, and I was one of those guys. So I went to basic training in October, 2011, and I graduated in February of 2012 while you were at NTC. Hmm. Um, and we, this was another, you know, pretty interesting, uh, development kind of, uh, I'm sure it's happened before, but I haven't heard of it. We got to the reception center, which is when you in process a new base, you kind of go through like a week to two of like in processing, they call it reception. Um, and there was a lot of infantrymen there, uh, probably 50 or 60 of us, mm. which to me wasn't, I mean, I just spent my entire last four months with a whole bunch of infantrymen and we were going to the third infantry division. I didn't think it was anything unusual to mm. have 50 or 60 infantrymen. Yeah. When I went through, there was only maybe 10 or 11 of us out of a group of, I don't know how many hundred probably. Yeah. So, I mean, that should have been a red flag right there. Um, so after one of our morning PT sessions, um, and yes, I did once do these, uh, 
um, they they basically said, hey, if you're not uh, Love and Bravo, you can you can leave. Everyone's Love and Bravo stand fast. And there were, like I said, 50 or 60 of us. Mm. Um, maybe less. You know, numbers change over time, but a good chunk, a full full formation of guys. And then there's like, raise your hand if you're married, uh, or if you have if you're a single father. And a bunch of people raised their hand, probably 15 people or so. Like, okay, you can leave too. No, like everybody else, your orders are being changed. You're going to 164 and you're deploying to Afghanistan in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and for, for people who aren't in the military, that sounds really drastic. And like, oh my God, I can't believe they would do that to these guys. But that happens all the time. Yeah. 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 And it's also pretty common for, for you to get new privates midway through a deployment. So they'll, they'll, guys will come to a, you know, third ID, for example. They'll go through in processing. And then two weeks later, like, oh yeah, by the way, you're going to join this unit who's been there for six months, you know? Right. And they're going to hate you when you show up because, yeah. you know, they, <laughs> they're all friends now. And now you're just going to show up and mess everything up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, yeah. So obviously, though, you guys were already in TC. Mm-hmm. You guys were already trained. Mm-hmm. We were not. So basically, they took the 30 of us um, and they also transferred some soldiers from, uh, you know, 1st and 30th and some other battalions in the 3rd ID mm-hmm. for the deployment, mostly NCOs. And uh, we did like a mini NTC. So we did uh, like squad live fire, team live fire, platoon live fire, night shoots, ruck marches, PT tests. Um, we did rapid field initiative, RFI, which is where you get all your free stuff for the deployment. Um, we did SRP, which is soldier readiness processing, mm. which you guys have done probably back in like yeah, December. Yeah, we were doing that before Christmas. Uh, yeah. So, and that's where, you know, they... Make sure you have your will and your shots are current and uh, your administrative stuff is all lined up and that you're deployable. Uh, so it's it's quite a process and it usually takes months. And we were basically I in processing the case. That short amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> it was fast. Yeah. I mean, we did it. We did I can't believe it. it. That proves that you don't need months and months and months and months to do this stuff. But we no, won't it was probably a rabbit hole. Flash <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was probably a month from when they told us that we were going till the day we like arrived at the unit. Mm. Um, and, you know, and so we still had in processing to finish. We had all the pre-deployment training, which is a lot of PowerPoints and, you know, counter IED training and stuff like that. That's separate from the normal train up. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it two weeks of like, like civilian time when we actually showed up to the unit. But in reality, it was only five work days because mm. right before deployment, you go to three and four day weekends. So we weren't, we were working like three days a week. Uh, so when we showed up on like a Tuesday, there were only like four or five more work days before we actually ended up deploying. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget, they stood a kind of a similar thing. They stood us up in front of all the companies in front of battalion. Um, they split us up by company. So I already knew I was going to Bravo at that point. Mm-hmm. And the Bravo platoon sergeants stood out in front. I said, raise your hand if you have a higher than 270 score. And I raised my hand. Yes, I had a higher than 270 PT score. <laughs> One. Like, it were two or three times ever. Um, <laughs> and the uh, the one that asked me to raise my hand was, uh, at that time, Sergeant First Class James Ott. Mm. And he's like, you want to be in first platoon? And I said, yes. Yeah. So I never even had an opportunity to be in another platoon because I just jumped Right on the guy that scared the crap out of me. Yeah. <laughs> well, with the I think he chose, and you you chose very well in that situation. I think that worked yeah, out yeah, well. 
I couldn't have picked a better company in platoon to, yeah. to start my military career. Yeah, for sure. And you would, he definitely had a coffee cup, coffee mug still glued <laughs> to his hand. So I never saw it leave. For those of you who don't know James Ott, he, uh, he lives off of coffee and not like, you know, Folgers light roast. I'm talking the blackest black of coffee you can ever come across. And he had this plastic mug, and it, it was from Wawa gas stations, which are like a series of gas stations in the Northeast. And when you would, he would never wash it. And he would have me make his coffee on occasion, I think because I was his Bradley Gunner, but also because my last name was Coffee, and I think he enjoyed the novelty of that. Uh, <laughs> and so I would make his coffee, and it would have to be like, you could stick a, sto- a spoon in it and it'd stand straight up in it, you know? And you'd look into that mug, and it was like looking into the abyss. <laughs> you know? So... And it did not matter how hot it was. No, like it, I saw that man drinking that coffee in a grape field, 120 degrees outside. Yeah, just, yeah. just love coffee. It's the way, the, and I, I understood it later when I became a pilot. <laughs> that, you know, the the army runs on mel it runs on melatonin and it runs on coffee, coffee to wake you up and melatonin to put you to sleep. So that more or less that's where kind of where our stories come together. Uh, that is when I reported to the unit, and that's when I met most of the people that we're going to talk about during this podcast. And mm-hmm. that is where the story of Bayonet Company, 1st and 64th Armor Regiment, 2012 Operation Enduring Freedom starts, really. Yeah, yeah, it does. Which kind of leads us into, where did we go? <laughs> uh, <laughs> because we're going we're gonna to talk a lot in the podcast about you know specific locations, comp names, um, you know, district names, and it it will get understandably confusing. And mm. we will try to keep like a published product on the website and on the podcast page, so you can refer to it while you're listening. So, like, if you get turned around, you can look at you know basically a map or a legend. But we kind of want to orient our listeners onto this area that we lived, worked, played, fought, bled, and died. Obviously, not us, but you know, brothers that we lost um, on this somewhat hollowed ground. And we just want to take the moment to kind of orient you onto what Spurwingar and Panjway was. Yeah. Um, we'll try to keep it brief, <laughs> but <laughs> Panjway is a district. So if you think about the uh, United States, if the United States is a country just like Afghanistan, then the prov- uh, the provinces are going to be the states. And so that would be Kandahar, Kandahar province. Um, Panjway district was in Kandahar province. So you think about the districts as like counties. So Panjway was like being in a county of a state. Uh, Spurwangar, where we lived and worked, was a combat outpost in Panjway. Uh, Panjway is a good bit larger than the area we're going to talk about for the most of the, the podcast. Yeah. But if you if you kind of envision a square area of land, but at the top left corner of that square, you put like a horn from a, a cornucopia. Like a musk ox or a cornucopia. <laughs> that's a really good yeah. Yeah, example. that's what it always reminds Just, me of. Yeah. So I mean, really wide at the on the eastern end, but narrowing and coming up to a tip and kind of curving. And it does, it forms a tip at the end. Yeah. And that's called the horn of Panjway. And that when people talk about being in Panjway or fighting in Panjway, nine out of 10 times, they're talking about being in the horn of Panjway. Yeah. 
which is just the last few kilometers of the entire district because there's yeah. a lot of things that are going on there. It's narrowing down. So in this east to west trajectory, it's as it narrows down these two rivers, the Argam Dob is kind of the northern border and it's coming down. And then on the south border of the district, you have what's called the Registan or Red Desert. And this is nothing but sand dunes. It looks like the surface of Mars between Panjway and the border with Pakistan, which is one of the reasons why Panjway was such a hot spot is because they could, you know, they could get in and out of Pakistan fairly easily um, by crossing the desert. So you have this elongated horn coming to a point and then those final, you know, few kilometers, what, maybe 20 clicks. Yeah. If even that, if even that was where the vast majority of the fighting in Panjway went on because not only did the, the desert provide access for, you know, Taliban to move back and forth. It was also really close to Helmand. You know, as the crow flies, it's not very far from these really hard fights that the Marines had in 2010 in Sangin and places like that. Yeah. And there's, there's also, there's another Southern river. Uh, and you kind of mentioned it. Oh yeah. I forgot. The, the Dowry Rood and the Dowry Rood was mostly dry during the summer. So yeah. it wasn't really a, a train feature that was insurmountable for us. Uh, not like the Argadab. I mean, the Argadab is a wide yeah. river. You had to have bridge. There's no way you could swim or drive across. It was just a big, deep river. And Dowry Rood wasn't like that. No. Um, so yeah, like we said, yeah, kind of these two rivers coming to a coming to a junction, um, and then to the immediate west of Panjway, you had Maiwand District, uh, which just kind of like Panjway, most of the fighting is in that green zone that's near the Argadab River, hmm. and then you keep following that. My Wan district down, that's when you get to, to Helmand. Yeah. Um, but going back to Panjway, so you got the, the northern edge, Argandab River, southern edge, Registan Desert, and Dowie Rood. Uh, there are some mountains kind of sprinkled in there, but they're not really dominant terrain features or really even that relevant because no one was in them. Yeah. I mean, they're really, they really mountains so much as just crags. You know, they would, there was these incredible vertical cliff faces that just went straight up to a point and back down. And it was more of these ridge lines. And, you know, you couldn't really climb up them without ropes and equipment, you know, things like that. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like Eastern Afghanistan where people lived there. Yeah. No one wanted to live on the side of a cliff face. So, they were largely irrelevant, except just kind of serving as like boundaries for certain areas of the operations. Um, so Panjway, you know, it, it doesn't take too much imagination to see what it would have probably looked like before it was irrigated. It was probably just like the areas of Kandahar and, uh, in southern Afghanistan that aren't irrigated. Hmm. You know, kind of a lot of wide open desert, um, some scrag brush, uh, maybe a couple areas of vegetation where there's you know water or wells but for the most part pretty dry and open but at some point somebody irrigated it and when they did they basically created this agricultural uh oasis mm. between these two rivers uh and they put irrigation canals in they put wells in they ran you know miles and miles and miles of, of aqueducts and canals and whatnot and what they got was a really fertile growing area uh so we weren't really prepared for that. No. We were we were thinking we were going to be in the mountains. The, yeah. yeah. So you hear Afghanistan, and as an infantryman, your first thought is like, fuck, we're going to be humping gear up and down mountains all day right. long. So it was a shock to our systems to get to Panjway and see that it was more, it was flat. Like everywhere that we walked was flat, you know, because it's in this valley between these rivers. And flat is even, it looked flat. 
you know? Yeah. You know, we landed. It looked flat. Yeah. We're like, oh, well, this is going to be easy. We're falling off the top of mountains. Uh, and Luke's laughing because it was not flat. Um, I would argue we probably climbed tens of thousands of feet of elevation in an area that was probably below, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't below sea level, but I mean, you, you didn't climb up any mountains, that's no. for sure. Um, and the reason was, you know, just kind of pr- like primal medieval architecture. Yeah. We weren't dealing with a overly uh, developed area. Most of the construction techniques in the area, are, you know, mud or literal, you know, manure or, you know, human waste or animal waste. Um, so, you know, they would dig. So the way that they would dig, uh, you know, canals or they would dig their fields for grapes. So if you thinking about a grape field, if you go to Napa Valley, California, you see all these grape vines hanging over fences or wires, these very fancy things. Well, the Afghans didn't have that, nor did they want that. Basically, they would just plow parallel rows, uh, or by plow, I mean dig parallel by ditches hand. Yeah. into the ground by hand, four or five feet down into the ground. And I'd say, you know, in an acre, you'd probably have 10 parallel rows, yeah. six feet apart with a six foot mound in between them. Mm-hmm. And, and they would lay the the grape vines across that mound. And that was their, that was their grape field. Yeah. And grapes were a huge part of, you know, the agricultural uh, system there. And, you know, these grape fields would be, the way they would design them is they would be these squares and these they might have been like the biggest ones might have been two or three acres at if max. Even, yeah. It probably not even mm-hmm. that like the, you know, more, more or less around an acre. And then these, these grape fields would be squared off with what we call goat paths, which are these little footpaths that they would use between them that would run along the top of these walls. And so essentially what was created is in the more irrigated areas were these series of parcels of squares where when you were moving through it, you would go open over a wall drop down walk between these two other walls and then you would go up and over a wall and you know 40 50 meters and you do the same thing again and so you climb these walls all day long whenever you're maneuvering there and that's a you know that's a pretty pretty serious um kind of terrain to deal with when you're trying to fight which we'll talk about obviously in more detail later yeah, and it's worth mentioning that you know, we're, we're talking about going in and out of these rows. And if you weren't there or if you're not familiar with the area, you're probably wondering why we didn't just walk on those paths. And we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah. There's a very good reason why we weren't walking on the paths. Yeah. Uh, but like Luke said, I mean, you would go you go up and over a wall and you're, you're down into a, basically a trench. And then you're walking a trench for, you know, 100 meters and you're up and over a wall. And maybe you're going in and out of a irrigation canal and then you're into an orchard and then what you run into are what were called collots. So another part of the agriculture there, there's, there's three main things that are going on. The grapes are a significant portion, but they also grew a large amount of poppy, which is a used, you know, to, in the heroin production, which is a primary source of income for the Taliban. And they grew a, a boatload mm-hmm. of marijuana. Um, oh, yeah. and so the poppy and marijuana were actually in these wide open fields. And so when you put, and they were kind of interspersed through these grape fields, so they didn't have the walls, they would be surrounded right. by walls, but the, the field itself would be flat. Uh, so all you have was concealment when you cross those fields, you didn't have any cover at all. And then there were also closer in towards the collots, there was uh, orchards of pomegranate trees. And these orchards are relatively small, but really dense, really heavily, veg- uh, really heavy vegetation. And they were usually closer in towards the villages. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, 
you know, it was a heavy agricultural area and they had all these fields. And obviously the grape rows they could only use for grapes because just the unique nature of how you have to grow grapes and hang mm. vines and stuff. But those open fields that Luke's talking about, we would see them rotate different crops through those fields mm-hmm. all year round. Yeah. When we first got there, they were poppy fields. And then after the poppy season was over, then they became corn fields or wheat fields. And then later in the summer, they would become marijuana fields. Yeah. Um, I mean, they pretty much grew marijuana year round, but they yeah. would rotate a lot of the more formal fields through a whole bunch of different crops. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, interspersed in all these fields were these little clusters of mud hut villages. So follow us on Instagram. You'll see plenty of pictures of them. Uh, generally, they were one or two stories tall, and, you know, uh, they would build them in a kind of four. They would have four sides, and they have a shared courtyard in the middle, and there might be one or two ways in and out of these. And, you know, some sometimes they were larger, sometimes they were smaller, but these would be a cluster of these little compounds uh in various size and that would form a collot yeah and like you know i'd say probably what the average one had 10 15 buildings in it max sure and by buildings i mean make compounds yeah uh the bigger ones might have a mosque or a school uh and you would see evidence of a, a former attempt to kind of modernize the area just random concrete schoolhouses or concrete buildings that kind of don't match the rest of the architecture mm-hmm. yeah you'll you'll be walking walking through in a schoolyard and you'll say like, man, this looks out of place. And there'll be a little well there and there'll be in the concrete, it'll say UN 19, you know, 91 or something, yeah, 1979. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't know the full story and maybe we'll be able to explore at some point, but there was definitely a very big effort by the UN and the United yeah. States to irrigate and develop the area. I mean, there's schoolhouses, there's buildings. The one that we stayed in on Spurwingar was built by the UN. Yeah. Uh, you know, the wells, uh, and dams. I mean, there's a huge dam on the Argandab River. There's a huge dam in Helmand uh, that was built, you know, back in the 70s as well to create these agricultural zones in Helmand and in Panjway. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating history that I, I don't know as much about as I'd like, mm-hmm. uh, but it's clear that at one point this area was not this dense art agricultural zone. It was created yeah. to create, you know, this industry. So, yeah, we've got the clots. Uh, these villages kind of interspaced, and they were all named. Uh, whether the names that we gave them were the names that the locals called them, uh, probably about 50-50. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them were pretty well-known villages like Sketcha, Najat, uh, Pimaluk. Uh, those are, you know, we would hear the same verbiage from the locals when they were describing things, and the words would come up. So they were pretty consistent. But some of the smaller villages, I think, were probably misnamed or multiple villages had the same name kind of thing mm-hmm. so you got this huge agricultural zone with all these different kinds of fields and like villages interspaced throughout and I, you know i believe the population of panjway is in like twenty five thousand people it's yeah, a it's... huge number of people in a very very small area yeah it's pretty significant and these villages were usually you know there was never one big concentration of population you know the biggest villages maybe had a few hundred people in them so they were really spread out over the entirety of the horn. And so these villages were never, these clots, they were never more than two or 300 meters away from each other. And especially as you got closer to the northern end of the district, where the the one asphalt road in Panjway that actually didn't even go all the way out to the tip of the horn uh, that came in from Kandahar was Route Hyena. And then yep. there was a little T, if you, you know, if you make you a T shape, the the bottom of that T that went down to Spurwingar was Route Brown, and that was asphalt. 
But other than that, yeah. there was not a single square inch of asphalt in Panjway. There's one in, more in in the Horn. Oh yeah, there, there is one, one more. There yeah. were there were two more. There was the route route Quebec, which was yeah. just to the west of Spurlingar, and that went to Fob Zangabad. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Fob Zangabad was the battalion headquarters for First and Twenty Third Infantry, which we for totally skipped over mentioning. <laughs> we weren't attached to one six four, so we were Bravo Company one six four, but we got detached from one six four and attached to one two three Infantry out of Fort Lewis. Uh, so while we were still from 164, we took all our orders and we worked for 123. And they were out of Zangabad. Uh, there was one other asphalt road just to the east of the Bazaar, which is another significant feature uh, of Panjway. And that was that went down towards Najat. And that was paved yeah. about half the way down until it got blown up like five times. <laughs> yeah, so Route Brown and uh, what was the one next to Najat? What was it called? I honestly don't remember that one. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Route Brown and Route and that one were more or less the kind of eastern half of our AO. And that's where we did most of our operations was in the eastern chunk. Yeah. Um, but for our, our intents and purposes, you know, Route Brown is a significant part of the story of Sparamagar. And it'll come up multiple times. So we won't we won't go into detail here. But that's something that stick in your mind. It's definitely worth it to kind of remember these names. And like I said, we're going to throw up maps and we're going to show up pictures so that you can orient yourself. But, you know, Route Hyena has a huge significance to like our Canadian counterparts who we took over mm-hmm. from, um, you know, in 2011, Americans took over at, at Panjway. But from 2006 to 2011, it was a Canadian AO. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why you have Route Quebec. And Hyena was a big project for the Canadians because before that, there was it was way too dangerous for them to keep driving up and down Panjway. They were just getting messed up. So they needed that big mm-hmm. paved MSR to safely move. So I think that kind of somewhat covers the geography. Um, kind of briefly cover the military history. Uh, mm-hmm. If those of you have read Lions of Kandahar by Rusty Bradley, it kind of covers how uh, Canadian American forces pushed into Panjway for the first time in 2006 and took it. And it's a fantastic book. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah. So from 2006 to 2011, the Canadian forces owned Panjway. They, they lived at Spurwingar. They lived at Mazamgar. They lived at all these fobs and, and cops. And then in 2011, Americans took over. Uh, and there was one unit before us that took over in 2011 that we took over from. We held Spurwingar for nine months and Panjway with one, two, three. And then the unit that replaced us actually shut down Panjway and Spurwingar. So it was a very, very brief military history for American forces in, in uh, Panjway. And I think that's why a lot of folks really haven't heard of it. I mean, I think if you're in certain circles, you know what Panjway is. But if you walk into, you know, if you talk to someone who is maybe interested in military history or it's particular conflict. Like they'll know what Sauter city is and people know what Korngal is. And, you know, they'll hear, they hear about these big spots in Afghanistan, but you know, they, they don't really, that doesn't really blip on the radar because it was held up either by the Taliban for so long, you know, such a long period of our, our investment in there. Uh, but it was also held by Canadian forces. So, and it was a different kind of fight, you know, up until 2010 when the, when the Marines moved in the Helmand, the only people who had fought the way that we would fight in Panjway was the Canadians and the British out in Helmand. Yep. And so the Marines were the first ones to get a taste of this kind of like different kind of Afghanistan fight, which was no longer, you know, big battles across mountain valleys when they're 600 meters away. 
to these, you know, close ambushes and IDs and all this stuff. Yeah, but you know, uh, the Spurwinkar area had its own little history prior to even the Canadians moving in, and that was kind of illustrated in the uh, Lions Kandahar. Um, but you know, we haven't really talked much about Sparwangar. So, Luke, could you give us a little bit of uh, info about the hill itself? Um, Sparwangar is more or less in the middle of the horn, maybe just a little bit to the right of the middle of the horn of sure. Panjway. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at, you'll see in our pictures, and you'll see if you look on Google Maps, even you can see it. It's this hill. It's this random dirt hill that's probably a hundred, hundred and fifty feet tall in the middle of this flat river valley. And uh, it was actually built by the Russians during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. And in the very top of this hill, there's a road that went around the base and kind of spiraled up to the top. And the very top of it was an old bunker uh, that the Russians had built. As far as I know, the Russians built that bunker. Yeah, they did. And uh, so there's this bunker and a kind of small bunker system there. And then it essentially served as a point of domination for the entire district and that you could set arty or you could set you know your tanks up there and do some work which i'm sure the russians did uh and so you know it was not a natural terrain feature for us to have this hill and but it also worked incredibly well to our advantage in that it put us in a kind of central location we had a route of asphalt going and connecting to hyena instead of dirt because dirt means IEDs in Afghanistan. Um, it's a little bit different. We'll get into the IEDs later about how they work there. But it also, it, it saved us a lot of a lot of um, trouble on our cop actually getting hit because it was essentially a fortress. It was almost impenetrable. There was, you know, there was two or three gates of security. There was Afghan uh, security contractors that ran all the security on the kind of outer perimeter. And then you had to get through an A&A compound and then you had to come up to where we were situated. And so we lived between kind of hooches that we had made and constructed, or the Canadians probably constructed, and this concrete school that the UN had built, I think in the 90s, before the Taliban took over, um, that the UN had built. And fortunately, we got to live in the concrete school, which was nice because it had air conditioning. And you know, <laughs> and uh, we can talk a little bit more detail about that first impression of Sparwangar. Uh, the, the short version is that as soon as I got off the helicopter, I was like, dude, this is nice. Because <laughs> I heard Afghanistan, I was thinking cots and tents, which is what a yeah. lot of guys in the infantry have to deal with when they deployed to Afghanistan. We got really lucky in terms of our living quarters and situations. Well, even at like Zangabad and Talakan and Mushan, those dudes were living in GP medium, Ten. sleeping on cots. Like, Yeah, 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 we got lucky. And we were also lucky in that it was an easily defendable position, you know. So a lot, a lot of cops out west of us would get hit almost every day. There was an ALP checkpoint, an Afghan local police at a checkpoint that was constructed while we were there. And as soon as the HESCOs went up, actually while the HESCOs were going up, they were getting hit and the Taliban were sneaking there at night and playing IEDs. There was a, an ODA team captain that actually got hit by an IED and lost his legs out there, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Yep. So that, that little checkpoint got hit every single night. And if we had been down on that level playing field, instead of having that elevation, because we were our guard towers are probably a good 20, 30 feet above the grape fields, then we would have gotten hit every single night. So they didn't. They only, yeah, they only hit the cop once or twice, and it was kind of middling at that. They didn't really try to actually fight us. Yeah, our our response to those attacks was so overwhelming. It was. <laughs> I mean, they shoot like. A grenade at the cop, and we'd have 50 people on the roofs just, like, spraying. 
the general vicinity where it came from. And that's not yeah. to say that we were indiscriminately firing. We weren't. No. Uh, it was just extremely no. disproportionate. And like you said, I mean, you have you, it's a, it's they, a fortress. Yeah, it is. And I think they learned a lesson uh, on that, and they never really mess with us there. So what we wanted to talk about next was kind of a brief history. Uh, we've talked about military history of Panjway. We talked about topography of Panjway. We talked about Sperwangar in particular. Um, but now we're going to look at the enemy uh, that we were fighting. And at the time, and still I'm sure, uh, the dominant enemy in Panjway is the Taliban. Um, and what a lot of people may not know is that uh, Panjway is where the Taliban originated. More specifically, Panjway mm-hmm. used to be uh, a good bit larger. Uh, it used to include the district to the north on the northern side of the Argandab called Zari. So when Panjway was one, when it was both of those districts, uh, the Taliban originated in that area. And I've heard two stories. I've heard that they were in Zari or I've heard that they're in Panjway. So for sake of argument, it was Panjway at the time. So it was one of the two. And essentially, after the Soviets left, there was just kind of this power vacuum. It was a bunch of warlords, kind of tribalism. And, you know, basically what happened was the warlords went a little bit too far. They kind of exceeded what the religious um, scholars in the area believed was acceptable. And they staged a revolution. And that revolution became the Taliban. And it's actually kind of ironic to me that a moral issue is what caused the Taliban to rise. And Mm. they then became probably one of the most immoral ruling bodies in modern history, Uh, at at least according to Western standards. Mm -hmm. And this is in 1994 that they come to power. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe like the revolution in Panjway was it wasn't very long before they actually became like a, you know, the like dominate the, the state power. Yeah. yeah, it was it was pretty quick. They kind of like got a taste mm. of power after they took over Panjway. Like, well, we could do this everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there's a really good book about the period of time after the Soviets left till two thousand to September tenth, two thousand and one, by a former CIA guy, maybe I think a CIA analyst or something. It's called Ghost Wars, and he talks mm-hmm. a lot about how the Taliban came to power. And that's that's been years since I read. I read it before we left. Um, yeah for the deployment. So it's been almost 10 years since I've let, read it, but that's a good book for people to check out if they're interested in that story. Yeah. So feel free to, to read it and then fact check us in the comments. Because yes, please do. <laughs> we would love to get, make sure we're getting it right. So if we're getting anything wrong, don't hesitate to reach out and tell us we're messed up. Um, so yeah, I mean, and from that moment on, I mean, it was not only a Taliban held area, it was a Taliban stronghold. And that was evidenced by the and way, the spiritual homeland. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was evidenced by the way that they built their buildings in this area of the country. Everything was a compound. Everything had, you know, basically firing positions. Every building you could get on the roof and use it as a fighting position. Like, I've never been somewhere and looked like every building is essentially a fortress. Yeah. Uh, so when in 2006, the, you know, NATO or, yeah, it would have been NATO at the time. NATO's mm-hmm. like, we're going to take Panjway back. They had a. They fought. They fought so hard to take Panjway, and that again, yeah. Lions of Kandahar is the book to read to get that full story. Uh, mm-hmm. But it was a brutal fight, and particularly the fight to take and hold Sperwingar was a brutal fight because that was a Taliban position, and they had the high ground. They had the fortress, and it was you know a special forces ODA that that took it, and that was kind of with the their end of, counterparts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that was kind of the end of the Taliban's, um, at least overt control 
of, of Panjway. And for those interested, uh, you know, obviously we left in 2013, Panjway. We no longer had operational control, handed over to the Afghans. And in 2017, when I was there, uh, it was it was completely peaceful. There were no there was no Taliban activity at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously you draw your own conclusions, and there's a lot of theories that it's basically just kind of like a, a deal behind closed doors, and that the Taliban's still really in charge. They just don't fight there, uh, which I would believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but and you flew over so, Sparwangar as well when you went back in 2017. Yeah, I did. And you times. said it was just like a ghost town, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so Spurwingar in 2017, there were a couple Humvees on the base. Didn't look like they were really using it. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of hard to say. So, yeah. Hmm. But we'll, we'll talk about that another time, I'm sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so but, I think one of the uh, the central focuses of this of this podcast is going to be, you know, the infantryman's story, the grunt, you know, the daily grind of that infantry job. But one of the things that's really, really important the and crucial po- components of this story is all of our people that we have with us in terms of like attachments. We have these enabling assets. And so, you know, let's take a minute to kind of paint a picture for people. You know, we, you have the infantryman who's out there doing the fight, but then you have all of these people who are attached either directly or indirectly to this system that helps us fight. And so let's take a minute to kind of describe that web of connection for people that way. The people who aren't really familiar with how that stuff works, they can get a brief introduction to it. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning a lot of the assets we're going to describe are typically only available at much higher levels than uh, you know an infantry company. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually, these are you know brigade or division level assets that you have to request or wait for. But due to the nature of the fight in Panjway, and and it was similar for other units like Inzari and Maiwan Helmand, uh, they had to separate these units out. And when we talk mm-hmm. about this, we're talking about. Um, signals intelligence teams, uh, explosive ordnance teams, military working dog teams, um, you know, female engagement teams. Uh, what else did we have? Uh, we had we had a PA on our cop. Yep. yep. You know, which was unheard of to have a, act like a like a medical officer on a on a you know company level cop. You typically just have your medics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, we were we had a lot of assets that. I don't think we're we're typical. Uh, again, peering through a straw, we were infantrymen at a different time in the war, so maybe it was more typical than I thought. But based on talking to other veterans, these are generally like battalion or higher level assets that we had available on our combat outposts. They lived with yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, and we had you know the the the, the two crucial components uh, of all this for our fight was EOD and the military working dogs, and we're going to be talking a lot about EOD and, and the MWD guys, um, you know, the EOD guys, they came from, we had Air Force guys out there. We had Army. Uh, they were all, for the most part, like these were really squared away dudes and they helped us tremendously in our effort because the IEDs were such a hard part of our fight. And so EOD and, and the military working dog teams were both, they were out there with us almost every single patrol. And, you know, these, these teams would get stretched thin because they would be one team that might have a couple of three, you know, dogs, maybe two dogs, and then the EOD guys might be, you know, a team of four or five guys. And they would go out with us, they go out with second, they go out with third platoon. Uh, so these were, you know, important part of this this picture that we paint. And um, I always will have a soft spot in my heart for the military working dog guys. 
because, you know, and sorry, sorry, Army, you're going to have to take a hit on this one. But uh, hands down, hands down, the most professional, determined, hard, hardest fighting, diligent, resilient military working dog teams we had came out of the Navy and the, and the Air Force. And these guys joined not expecting to be put on the front line of combat. Like they joined to essentially be, you know, they'd be out sniffing ports and, you know, uh, uh, these points and big events. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they, they got shipped to us and attached to us. And then they were, they were right there with us in this infantry fight and they were awesome. And then EOD guys, same thing, man. They were awesome. Yeah. I mean, my experiences with the military working dog teams, I mean, I ended up adopting a military working dog, uh, a retired one. Um, just, I mean, and those interactions had a huge effect on me personally, uh, especially on an emotional level, just to have those animals on the cop and have such mm. easy access to them. Like if you had a bad day. I mean, I would walk down, I'd go to the, the dog handler hooch and I would just play with a dog and mm. it'd be amazing. The amount of morale that that can, you know, how that can save you from a very dark place after a very horrible day. Um, so just outside from their, their physical capability, which, uh, that they brought to the fight, which was immense, uh, just kind of being a lame-o dog person. It was, it was a big deal to me. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. It was nice to have yeah. them there in a lot of capacities. And we'll talk more in detail, especially when we have a couple of those guys on here about what those dogs do and how they work and uh, the really impressive, you know, kind of asset that they brought to the battlefield for us. And they, they also, them and the EOD teams, they gave us the, the unique opportunity to train with them. Mm-hmm. So when, when you have these assets at like a battalion or brigade level and you have to request them or you only get them on occasion, you know, you only really get to work with them. But since they lived with us, we could train with them. Yeah. So we could practice clearing buildings with the dogs. We could have the EOD team come down to the range and run an IED lane and teach us what to look for and teach mm-hmm. us how to use the equipment better and teach us the TTPs and the signs to look for. And they made, you know, us much better at our job of looking for IEDs than simply having to call them anytime we found one because it just wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't reasonable for us to be able to do that when they only had four guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, traditionally, like in Iraq, for example, uh, for at least from my experience and other people can, you know, please do chime in on this, but you'd be out on patrol and you might find a suspected, you know, IED you would usually call in EOD and they would come from somewhere else. They'd, they'd drive in. You'd sit there for a couple, three hours. They'd grab a robot out there. They'd rig it all up and they'd blow it or they'd dig it up. If it was an ID, you'd move on. And then they'd go back to a base and you would continue mission. Right. But for us, because Panjway and specifically the Sparrow and Gar AO was inaccessible by vehicle. Um, so you had this, and we need to, we actually need to get on Google Maps and draw a square around it just to kind of get a sense of the square mileage or square kilometer of this dense agricultural uh, infrastructure and these, these mud hut collots that were not accessible by anything other than a motorcycle and maybe one or two roads, maybe a little rinky dink car, but you sure as hell weren't driving a Matt V down. Right. Um, so that's why these guys went on patrol with us, you know, they, and they, you know, they fought with us and everything like that because when we found those IDs, they needed to be there with us to immediately take care of the issue instead of having to wait because we couldn't wait because we could have waited we would have been fighting all the time while we waited which is a really good transition to our next topic which is ieds oh, uh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, i mean so when you say that ieds were a big deal on our deployment 
a lot of people are going to go to Iraq in their minds. They're going mm. to go to Iraq and think about, you know, tanks hitting IEDs or Bradley's being turned inside out by these five, 600 pound IEDs. And that's not what we mean. Yeah. Uh, at one point in Panjway, it was that it was these former, you know, improvised charges that were like derelict Soviet munitions or whatever. But by the time we got there, it had shifted to homemade explosives. They were, they were, there was a whole bunch of basically Timothy McVeigh's <laughs> out there making bombs out of household materials. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a lot of them too. A so, lot. You know, yeah. In Iraq, the concern was always these big, huge, you know, V-bids that would come up and just annihilate a truck full of people or whatever. But, in, you know, in Panjway and actually all across that whole area of Afghanistan, down the helmet especially, IEDs weren't these big, huge 150, 200, 400 pound explosions. They could be five pounds of this homemade explosive. You know, the, the bigger one that would be in the ground would be like 20 pounds. That would be a big IED for us to find yeah. uh, because the idea was to, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an anti-vehicle operation. It was an anti-foot, you know, uh, patrolling infantry, you know, uh, kind of fight for them. Yeah. And it was really, you know, it was the best way for them to meet their resources. If they could only mm -hmm. make, you know, 500 pounds of, an, of IEDs in a month well, why would they put them all into one bomb when there's a low chance that that's actually going to do anything? Whereas they yeah. can put 50, you know, or I guess a hundred five pound IEDs all over the ground. And all they got to do is get one guy. It doesn't even matter yeah. if they kill him. They just, they take, <laughs> they, they, they take a leg off, they stop a patrol, a helicopter has to be called in and mm -hmm. you know, suddenly this opportunity to kill one guy turns into the opportunity to either shoot down a helicopter or, pin down an American patrol or stop them from getting to an IED factory and give you time to get the rest of you guys to get out of the way. Um, it was just a much better use of their resources. And yeah. uh, it, it, it worked. I mean, it completely affected our ability to move in that battle space. Yeah. And it's important. It's important that we address the tactics that the IEDs and, and how they, how they informed our tactics, but also how the Taliban were just so savvy with how they placed them that they knew how to kind of counteract our tactics. So for people who aren't familiar with how infantry works, you, you know, when you're in combat, the first, I mean, your first day in basic training, the first thing you learn is these three little words, shoot, move, and communicate. And the key word to that being move. And so infantry instills in you that when you start taking contact, you begin maneuvering, you know, you push and you flank and you do bounds and you suppress, you know, one unit suppresses while the other moves under, you know, there's suppression into an enemy position and clears it. And, you know, the idea is that you have these little puzzle pieces, these, or rather these chess pieces, you know, that's called the queen of, <laughs> the queen of battle. Queen of battle. <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> yeah. uh, but the infantry is the, these little chess pieces of a fire team, a squad, a platoon that you can maneuver in this space to conquer the enemy. Well, the IEDs completely robbed us of that ability of maneuverability. Um, you know, it forced us to not be able to spread out and walk in a wedge or walk in a particular kind of formation. It forced us to go on, on a file, you know, in a straight line down the middle. Uh, because if as soon as we started to spread out, people would step on these things because they'd have them placed in these kind of integral points in these intersections and everything. So, Curtis, give us a quick rundown on how they were placed. So without giving too much away, uh, and you know, we always got to remember we still have people downrange, so we're trying to be very vague about some of this stuff. But uh, mm -hmm. I always like to envision the the Taliban as hunters. 
Um, and if you spend any time with like big game hunters, uh, they're the way they track their prey is they look for where they would naturally go. So natural lines of, uh, of travel, natural choke points, water sources, all these kinds of things that animals are generally drawn to. The Taliban would do the same thing. They would take human, uh, you know, human nature into account. We're lazy. We're going to take the path of least resistance. Um, you're tired. You're, you're tired. You're walking down a road. Are you going to, you have to walk through an intersection or you have to cross a bridge or, you know, that kind of thing. So they're look they're looking for these, you know, natural choke points, these natural routes of, uh, in, of ingress and, um, and that's where they would put them. You know, it wouldn't mm-hmm. be worth their investment to just start just laying landmines all over Panjway. Uh, maybe in a different war it might have, but, you know, in this war, they're, we're fighting an insurgency. So the Taliban, even though they did a pretty poor job of it, they still wanted to try to protect the, the local population. So little kids running around stepping on landmines isn't really going to make the villagers want to protect the Taliban much. So mm-hmm. uh, in addition to being very deliberate in where they placed them, they were also courteous enough to typically mark the general areas of where they were. Yeah. Yeah, they would mark those areas, and you know, some of them obviously went unmarked. The more like, I think the more significant ones that were used is maybe like a defensive kind of perimeter around a particular mud hut or a particular right. village. Those would be pretty well marked, and usually with a line of rocks. You know, so if you saw that line of rocks, if you pop your head up over a wall and you see that line of rocks, you're like, oh shit! Like, are we inside the IED zone or are we outside of it? And so that was always kind of a pucker factor for everybody to see that line because you never knew exactly where you're at because obviously and this is unfortunately a lesson that was harshly learned is we learned really quick not to take the roads um because they would the roads were riddled with these natural choke points you know a tree would be there so the path would narrow down between the tree and the irrigation ditch and there'd be an id or you know you'd move into the village and there'd be this bridge you have to cross you know and so there'd be an id on one side of that bridge and so you know, we talked about the grape huts earlier and the grape or the grape rows. You know, we talked about these. Well, why are you guys out there climbing these walls? It was because we've got pushed off the roads by the IED yeah. threat, and so we couldn't move quickly down these roads. Instead, we had to push off into these fields because we knew, you know, they had limited resources, so they couldn't put an IED in every grape row because there was thousands of these things out there, and so we would walk the length of these, climb a wall, walk the length, climb a wall, walk the length. And then we would maybe shift up and down these parallel rows, you know, try to change our pattern of movement. So we never use the same field twice. We never use the same row twice. Uh, and what that allowed us to do was actually move through the space relatively safe from the IED threat until we got to these choke points uh, where we'd have to slow down and be really meticulous with how we tried to detect them. Yeah. And so the our route selection, our kind of, you know, infantry IQ or our IED IQ as it kind of developed over the deployment is what primarily kept us safe uh, from stepping on IEDs. But we we also used equipment, um, you know, mine detectors, metal detectors, that sort of things. Um, and that was kind of like this this other chess game that was happening on the side where we would develop a technology to counter a t- certain type of IED and then the Taliban would figure out we could detect it and they would, you know, make IEDs that didn't have metal in them. And then we would have to make a metal detector, a IED detector that didn't look for metal. And so, you know, this constant battle back and forth about these these technologies, and um, even you know the dogs. Once they figured out we were using the dogs to look for IEDs, they started targeting dogs. Yeah. Um, and there's you know there's a real sad story in there. I'm sure we'll tell at some point you know about them targeting a dog in RAO. Yeah. And the EOD, they knew to target EOD. So there was 
it was the Taliban may have been under-equipped, but they were by no means an inept uh, enemy. And if we didn't have air support, it would be a completely different kind of fight. Yeah, yeah. If we hadn't have had air support, then it would be a knockdown drag out for every every village. Um, So that's obviously a huge component of how we were able to successfully fight these guys was air support. Because the toe-to-toe, even though we always had them, you know, most of the time we had them outmanned, and we always had them outgunned. You know, we had more ammo and more guns than those guys could ever dream of. Right. Um, for the most part, you know, occasional, occasionally that might change. Um, and those stories will come up too. <laughs> but for the most part, we had them outmanned and outgunned. Um, but, you know, we, um, without that air support, it would have been just a, a really hard fight for us. Yeah, it's kind of like our trump card. You know, we were better infantry fighters in that environment, but they had the IDs. And then, yeah. but so that kind of leveled the balance the the playing field so we had to bring something else to the fight to kind of tip the, the balance back in our favor and my favorite infantry term is that we don't fight fair so everything we can bring to the fight to give us an advantage we're going to and the uh the attack weapon weapons teams made up the apaches or the scout weapon teams uh made up of the kiowas or the pink teams which was a combination of the two uh were absolutely invaluable in our yeah, in as many people as we got home is only because we were able to have those guys on a you know a quick line. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is kind of the introduction to the the fight. You know, like this shape. I think this has shaped the mold for you know for people to kind of imagine the kind of fighting we had to do, and we'll get into the actual gun battles and the actual firefights later on. But one of the things that we need to address here in this inaugural episode is we need to discuss how the IED impacts the soldier because our, our objective here is to tell the story of the infantrymen and, and these other soldiers that were with us in this daily grind. And the IED was this threat that was, it, it really kind of settled into the recesses of your mind and how you thought about the next day going on mission or the next patrol. And over a period of months of dealing with these with these things, you know, it began to have this kind of lingering, um, this lingering sense of unease for every step that you took. You know, you, you had this anxiety about every single step you took because it was this constant threat. You know, a firefight's different. You can kind of mitigate a firefight if you're taking, you know, if you're taking you're taking machine gun fire from your right, and there's a wall. 15, you know, let's say there's a wall five feet to your front, you can run in, hop behind that wall and more or less feel a little bit more better about the situation you're in. Yeah. But that, but that IED, you know, that puts that little voice in your mind that says, oh wait, there might be an IED on that wall. You know, the Taliban might be pushing me into that wall with this machine gun fire. And then I I lay down on that thing and I'm dead. And so this is something that really kind of develops this unsettled, feeling in the kind of gut of your stomach that you would have, you know, the night before an operation or the night before patrol that never quite left you, you know, and over a period of months of dealing with this threat, it takes a significant toll on, on the soldiers and their ability to fight successfully. And some guys, you know, it, it affects guys differently, but it was, it made a, it added a layer of mental complexity to our fight 
that um that you know if it wasn't there would have maybe would have been a different kind of way for us to to think about our presence there and how we how we moved in those spaces and everything yeah i mean it, especially once people started stepping on them uh, I, yeah. I feel like you know initially we were trained we would all this counter id training we knew they were there we were told they were there heard stories from the unit before us but until we started hitting them or we started finding them uh mm -hmm. it really didn't kind of click or register with us the the meaning of that threat uh you know for better or worse most people are kind of immune to most threats uh, until they personally experience it mm -hmm. and you know we had you know we had pfcs you know bring a private specialist handing them a fifty thousand dollar mine detector and being like figure out how it works you're in charge you're walking in front you're like everyone's safety behind you now depends on you so mm -hmm. instead of now now a you're up front so you don't have 50 people walking in front of you you know, you're likely going to be the first person to step on one. Not yeah. only that, now if you miss it, let's say you step over it, but you missed it because you didn't find it and somebody behind you steps on it, like now you have that guilt. Um, yeah. And so like you, it really instills this sense of duty and purpose behind it. Uh, but <laughs> as someone who did it for like six out of nine months, I could tell you like that, that duty and purpose went out the window as soon as you started to get tired you hold these mine detectors and they don't, they're not very heavy and 15 pounds, but when you're holding 15 pounds with an outstretched arm uh, after an hour or two, just constant movement, constant sweeping, your mind is constantly mm -hmm. engaged. You're looking for indicators. You're looking for choke points. You're listening to directions from the guy behind you telling you where to go. Um, and it just mentally and physically drains you to the point where that sense of duty that you had before you left the fob, like, yeah, I'm going to protect my people. Just goes to I just need to get home, and then yeah. the longer it goes, it devolves into I kind of just wish I step on one, and <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think <laughs> that speaks to and that speaks to this mental fight, this mental toll that the ID threat had on us, and especially guys that were clearing, you know. And I, I cleared a decent amount. You cleared a, a quite a bit more than I did, but uh, I cleared a lot. We had other guys who cleared more, and you know, all these things are going through your head. And you, it speaks a lot to the mental state that you reach when you start to play the, well, if I step on one and, and all, we all did this. So this, you know, for someone who's, who wasn't there, someone who's uninitiated, the guys who lost their legs and the guys who lost limbs would definitely hundred percent agree, I think with what we're saying here, but you yep. play this weird mental game, you know, would that that'd be all right? I, I think I'd be all right with that. You know, if it got me out of here and it got me out of having to clear these fucking IDs off the place. Um, and then something I actually thought about just a couple of days ago, as we began to kind of piece this podcast together, I had this kind of uh, resurgence of this, of this memory that I hadn't really had in a long time. I had this series of thoughts. Let me stop for a second and get my fucking bearings. We can edit this. Okay. So the other day I had this thought and this, this kind of memory. And I was like, holy crap, I forgot about this, but I remember what it was like the night before you know, big operation or even just before a regular foot patrol, it didn't have to be a big operation the night before patrol. And I would lay there in my bunk and I would think like, what, what would it feel like? You know, what would it feel like to step on one of these things and get my legs blown off? And what would like, would I be in a lot of pain? Would I be so shocked that I couldn't feel pain? You know, like what, what is this state of between, you know, between getting your legs taken off, and getting put on a helicopter, getting to a hospital, like what is that 
period of my life going to feel like? You know, and that's a that's a hard thing to overcome for soldiers and for a lot of guys. Yeah. And it's uh, that, that, that pre-mission panic, uh, whether it's the night before or the morning of, is when like you really contemplate all these kinds of thoughts and wishes and urges and fears. And, you know, I can, I can think of many times sitting on the HLZ getting ready to roll out, just thinking about like, Oh, if we go here, we're going to step there. And, you know, like, like you said, what, what is it going to feel like? And, um, you know, especially after Clark got hit and it became very, very real for at least our, our platoon, uh, because it was it was there, and uh, you know Clark is going to be one of our very first guests, so I don't I'm not going to spoil any of his story, uh, but probably more than anything to that point, him him getting hurt kind of sombered our entire approach, and we didn't have to wonder that question as much anymore because we watched it happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and uh, you know it's 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 a difficult thing to to convey to people but you know that's what we're trying to do here yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah the ieds were were a son of a bitch and we lost we lost guys to them and we've had guys get wounded you know to varying degrees and a lot of guys got seriously just terribly wounded um because of these these nasty little homemade bombs that were in the ground made that were made from plastic jugs a couple pieces of wood and you know a little piece of metal and you know we won't go into details on how yeah. the IDs were constructed. <laughs> we don't want somebody taking it home with them, but but it was very cheap and very easy to make. And you know, I know for me the uh, one of the one of the bigger mind fucks with those homemade IDs was how often we would find things that we left laying around, or that we things that we gave to children mm. used to make them, like the pens that yeah. we would give kids, um, or the water bottles that we would you know discard or batteries that fell out of our stuff and it got to the point where you know you, the the backpackers here are going to be super happy but we were basically like trying to be leave no trace patrolling because literally everything mm-hmm. we left behind somebody had found in an ied um yeah especially the stuff that you give the kids and it, it's a uh, when you're giving things to children and you know that the children are participating in the insurgency against you, it really dehumanizes them. And it's a very dangerous thing yeah. when you're dehumanizing children. Yeah. yeah. And these kids may not be violent. I mean, some of them undoubtedly were probably walking out like, Hey dude, this guy just gave me a pen. You said to bring these to you when they do, you know? Right. Uh, but you know, some of them, I'm sure they, they got, they, as soon as we left, the Taliban walked out and snatched them up. Hey, we need this, you know? And so these little kids, I always felt bad for the kids and especially the girls. Um, yeah. You know, that's an unfortunate life for someone to be born into. And uh, I've always said if I ever adopted, I would adopt an Afghan girl. I don't even know if you can adopt out of Afghanistan. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't think you can. But if you could, that's that's what I would do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the Taliban, you know, they, they were an insurgent. So they were in and among and part of the mm-hmm. population and they wore civilian clothes. It's all, you know, everybody knows this about insurgencies now because that's more or less a household term in America after this 20 year war. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and like those, those kids, those, especially the younger boys, like those were their future soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. the little boys that you and I were giving pens to or high-fiving in the villages, like they are fighting American soldiers and Afghan yeah. soldiers in Panjway and Zari and Helmand today. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, 
you know, and you, you witness that radicalization, you can see it in some of them. And it's yeah. just, it's difficult. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You see this, um, you know, in the different ages, you would see these different levels of interaction, you know, the little, little kids who are pretty friendly with us and, you know, like the four and five year olds, but as soon as they get up in that nine and 10, 11, 13, you know, 12 range, they kind of had a maliciousness about them, mm -hmm. especially the boys, the boys, never the girls. And yeah. by that point, the girls were being sequestered off yeah. and, and held in the home and they weren't allowed to walk around freely. Um, but the boys in that kind of preteen, early teenage years, they had this kind of malicious eye about them whenever they were interacting with us. And, you know, that sucks to sit yeah. there and look at a, a 10 year old knowing like, okay, in three years, you're probably going to be packing around dad's PKM ammo. And it also, you know, by the end of the deployment, we actually were like, cause we had killed so many Taliban. We actually, there's there a few times where we saw younger men, younger males out there, you know, that would maybe, maybe 15, 16 years old actually fighting us. Well, I, I don't know if you remember when we, uh, low crawl day, uh, which we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about at some point, but you mm -hmm. know, when we got into that village, you know, and standard procedure was we would check for gunpowder residue on everybody there, um, mm -hmm. in, including the younger boys that down to a certain age. And I can't remember the age of the kid. He couldn't have been older than 10. And he had, yep. didn't just I have gunpowder residue on him. It was on his hands. It was on his forearm. Mm -hmm. It was on his cheek. So this mm -hmm. wasn't somebody that picked up a gun. This was someone that was shooting it at us. Shooting at us, yeah. And that, and that was, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> You know, that was a day where we got, um, you know, right before we pushed into that village and snatched him, that kid and his dad up, mm -hmm. we uh, we got hit close. You know, yep. it, was a, it was a really close ambush, maybe probably five or six meters yep. um, from the from the part of our unit that took contact. Uh, we won't spoil it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it was a long day. And yeah, that was kind of a weird moment. And so for people who aren't familiar with the jargon, we'll try to stop ourselves and actually uh, tell you what acronyms or what a particular slang thing is because it's easy to fall into these patterns of this language. But we had what's called military age male. And for short, every once in a while you might throw out ma'am, but for the most part, military age male. Uh, and after that particular event, then when I began to think about military age males, it went from being grown men with beards to, you know, that 12 or 13 year old, does he fall into that category? And I'm, I'm kind of glad we're doing this this now, you know, eight, ten years later, eight years later, um, and not trying to tell as much of the story in 2013 when we just got back. Uh, because I think 2013, Curtis would have had a very different, you know, approach to the Afghan population, the kids, mm. um, the women. Uh, not that I hated them, but I think at the time, my perception was almost completely like they're all Taliban. And, yeah. you know, there was, there was yeah. not much of a differentiation between the civilians and the people we were fighting. And a part mm -hmm. of that remains true. Uh, it is still difficult to differentiate a lot of that. But I think with, you know, with this eight years of hindsight, it's a little bit easier to have more empathy. Yeah, it is for sure. And I think that's a result of our training, you know, mm -hmm. um, at least, at least maybe not now. I don't know how basic training is now, but, you know, 12 years ago when I went in the basic training, like day one, it was like, you're here and you're, you're going to learn to kill, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, infantry school is kill the enemy, kill, 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 yep. kill, kill. You hear kill all the time every yep. day. 
and they kind of breed this mind of yours to go out and kill people, um, which is important. It's part of the job. It's part of what you have to do. Um, but, you know, so for us, when we got into this fight, it was this weird balance of like this breeding infantry mentality of, you know, your job is to kill the enemy. But now we're working in and amongst this civilized, this civil population, this civilian population, uh, and these young kids and these wives and these families. Um, but also, we weren't really there in a coin fight. You know, we weren't out there to win hearts and minds. The nature of our mission, which we can go into more detail, especially when we have our, you know, Brian Kitching, Kitching on. Sorry. Sorry there, sir. <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> keep messing up his last name. Anyways, when we have you know we have our CEO on, he's gonna be able to talk more about how we went out there and we fought. You know, we pushed into these areas, so we had to balance this like really intense infantry fight with the Taliban, which was our purpose in being there, and that's a lot of what we did with not really fighting a coin fight, but not taking an objective either. You know, yeah, and I think so, that was a unique aspect of our fight at that time because a lot of units were doing true coin trying to like build mm -hmm. roads and build wells and develop rapport with the people and whether you know we were supposed to be doing that and we just weren't or you know i i truly believe that our our mission there was a little bit more of an interdiction mission and yeah. uh whether by necessity or just uh you know by intent but you know, we we patrolled to make contact with the enemy to push the enemy to determine the ground the uh to determine the battlefield on our, our terms, not on theirs. Yeah. And at the time I hated it because I didn't want to go out there <laughs> and I didn't want to walk to sketch and I didn't want to walk to Najat. Um, mm -hmm. But in, in hindsight, I am very proud of the work that we did as a company because I feel like we, we were bold and we were ambitious and we took the fight and, you know, all the way up until the day before we left the cop, we were fighting the Taliban and we yeah. were dictating the terms of that battlefield. And, you know, I'm super proud yeah. of what we'd accomplished on that deployment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important in terms of visualizing the fight for people is a lot of our fighting went on to the east of our cop. And that was mostly because as we began to patrol, we, we just kind of tumbled into these Taliban cells that were really entrenched and really strong. And so about, you know, maybe... I need to look at the map, you know, just a couple clicks to the east of Sparwangar. You had this line of villages that essentially ran on a north-south axis in the, in the uh, district. So essentially they ran on a north-south axis in this district. But also what happened around these villages is you had a really dense, um, uh, the vegetation got really dense and tight. And so the Taliban could move in and out of these places relatively easy without having to worry about ISR or the, uh, the Peaches Balloons or whatever. And so what was essentially created was this kind of, I don't want to say a stronghold, but a, but an incredibly heavy presence of Taliban in this one chunk of our AO. And, you know, about 500 meters east of Sparwangar was a clot and a tree line. And it was kind of like this magic line in the sand. And that as soon as you crossed that tree line, almost immediately, you would you guaranteed to take contact mm -hmm. because you were getting into the western edge of that little chunk of Taliban strength that was right. in that part of the AO that went all the way over to the other paved road uh, south of Maz uh, the bazaar, and that's where the the Najat and Sketcha and those villages were at. Which is ironic because when we first got there, 
Uh, yeah. The unit was more scared of the of the western portion of our AO. Uh, yeah. Not scared. Scared is the wrong word. They were more um, cognizant of the threat to the west. I'm not sure that the unit before us did a whole lot of patrolling to the east. I think they probably went yeah. to Adam's Eye, maybe Hajku Muhammad down to big and a little big reggae. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think they were doing foot patrols going several kilometers to the east, which is what we did. Um, which is a good segue into talking about what what our next episode is going to kind of launch off with is that uh, that threat to the west. So, Luke, please tell us about the mythos behind the two eight grid line. <laughs> so essentially, when we got to Sparrowgar, you know, we were you know we were briefed right off the bat about this magical line called the two eight grid line to the west of Sparrowgar, and this unit that was that we were replacing, you know, they said that every time they went past this point, so unlike the 500 meter uh, line that was drawn out to the east of us, this two point, this two eight grid line out to the west of Sparrowgar, they said that they would start taking a lot of contact and they got into, you know, the worst of their stuff kind of out in that area of their AO. And so one of the first things we did was start patrolling out into that area. And, you know, we were there for, we were actually on the cop and after we'd ripped in and the other unit had ripped out, uh, we were one of the first larger kind of more significant patrols we did was to push past that two, eight grid line and get out there and just kind of tickle them under the stomach a little bit and see what's going on. And, uh, and we definitely found out because it was on April 25th of 2012 and we had, walked the roads <laughs> and we we pushed out there just a straight line on this route this oh, dirt, we don't want to spoil road. It. we're talking about it next week yeah i know <laughs> we pushed out there and uh and that is where we took our first contact not just for the platoon but for the company yeah and the the build-up to that was just it's pretty interesting because we had patrolled before uh, most of it pretty close to route brown uh, some stuff in Adam's Eye, a little bit of stuff off to the east, down to the south near Big Reggae, but we've kind of gone to the safe spots to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this one, we it was actually kind of a last-minute change. I remember the night before, them saying we're going to the 2 grid line, and the CO's coming with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, when, and this, I think this was the first patrol that uh, Captain Kitchen had gone with us on. So that one in yeah. itself was a clue that he kind of expected us to take contact. Uh, besides the, yeah. the fact that we already had been hearing about the two eight grid line, the two eight yeah. grid line, and I say like, I remember the night before, but after we kind of got that change of brief, like hey, we're going out here. Uh, I remember they were like, okay, guys, like this is this is it. Like we're probably going to take some contact, yeah. and uh, we so we knew going in, we were going to get shot at, we were going to get in a firefight. And also up to that point, we had been leaving pretty late in the morning, so like eight or nine mm-hmm. a.m., and this was the first mission where we like we were leaving like at the crack of dawn like right at 5 6 a.m um so we there was the opportunity yeah. there that we were going to surprise them where they were before they had kind of a chance to to set up for us yeah yeah and this was a tactic that we learned to adopt pretty quickly because it worked pretty well and that we could be in and amongst them by the time they were getting out of bed uh and so you know the taliban didn't fight at night they knew that they knew not to come out at and mess around at night because they knew we would whoop them if they did. Yeah. Um, so we began to figure out, and the longer that walk was, the, the earlier in the night you left. So if that walk was a click and a half, you leave at you know four thirty. If that walk was five or six clicks, clicks, you leave at midnight. You know, 
so yeah um yeah this has been an interesting introduction to the beginning of this story yep and uh next week or next week next episode stay yeah. tuned <laughs> it'll, be, it'll, it'll be next week for our normal listeners but just remind yeah. you that if, uh, if you are one of our kickstarter listeners and we made our five thousand dollar goal you are probably gonna roll straight into episode number two three and four because those are now available to you and thank you for your help <laughs> yeah. so yeah episode two the first firefight yeah and i think you know just give you more of a preview and we'll talk about that for sure uh at length and we'll start to to dive into some of our more personal stories and that will be the last curtis and luke only episode for a while we promise yeah uh part of the reason we're doing these two episodes up front with just us is a it gives us the opportunity to practice uh yeah. we're rusty i'm sorry and uh it also gives us a chance to to make some content with the equipment that we have while we wait for the uh the kickstarter campaign to finalize and we can start really building out our capabilities and some ways that you guys can help us out even you know if it's okay you don't have to give us your money we'll take it but <laughs> uh, you don't have to give us your money but little ways you can help us out and it sounds kind of silly but just subscribe subscribe to the podcast or follow the podcast on whatever platform you're using spotify itunes uh, youtube especially um, just subscribe and like and do comments and you know, especially on like instagram and youtube you know comment and like it and like the podcast on whatever platform you're using it'll jump it into the algorithm and that'll help us gain some traction um, and the more traction we gain the better product and the better storytelling we can deliver to you all all right well with that said We'll see you next time. Next time.